0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in the series Uncompromising Orthodoxy. Following Jesus always and only happens within the shared accountability and vulnerability of community, of church. But who, if anyone, leads the church? Who leads the church? Who leads the church really? Who leads this church really? Is it me? I'm the guy who's up here most Sundays talking for a half hour or longer, if you're lucky. Am I in charge? Is it Cam? He's the guy at the community trainings filling his work week with coffee meetings on top of coffee meetings. Or is it someone that you don't know? Is it like an elder board hidden behind the scenes, a shadow government that meets in secret to, to decide how things will or won't be? And who's qualified to lead a church? What, what are the qualifications and who decides on them? Why does the church need leaders? Does it need leaders? Must there be authority at all? Can't we all organically share responsibility for the family of God? What is best? Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, it's a small book near the very back. Feel free to consult the table of contents. We have been in a series for the last few weeks about learning and rediscovering the foundational doctrine shared by disciples of jesus all over the world for thousands of years these doctrines that we call orthodoxy or right belief being a disciple of jesus or a christian is about more than intellectual belief meaning you know deciding in your mind that you think certain things are true it's about what you really believe and how that informs what you do which shapes the way you live Navigate crises, spend your time, treat other people. It shapes the person that you are becoming. And for hundreds of years of the Jesus movement, orthodoxy has been this courageous commitment to hold fast to what makes the way of Jesus unique in all the world without dilution or compromise. It's about drawing certain lines in the sand and saying, I follow Jesus, so I believe this is true. And then refusing to budge from faithfulness to the way. When the early Christians said the earliest Christian creed to one another, which was just simply, Jesus is Lord, reciprocating that creed, saying it back to someone, Jesus is Lord, meant acknowledging a profound and controversial, dedicated claim to the truth. It meant saying, I believe Jesus is Lord, therefore I believe any statements to the contrary are not true, and that makes me a Christian. If I do not believe that, then I am not. Orthodoxy is that hardcore, and that sits strangely with the modern sensibility, with the world of all religions welcome pretense and the coexist bumper sticker. Part of the progressive ethos claims queasiness at the idea of moral and religious boundaries, but everyone lives into them by default. All of us believe that something is true and thus rendering something else untrue. Of course, that doesn't mean that one has to be a jerk about it. There's no reason whatsoever that disciples of Jesus should ever become arrogant or mean-spirited, let alone hateful or violent against those with different beliefs. But we believe that certain things are true and other things are not true. And despite all the absurd modern hyperbole insisting otherwise, one can hold profound fundamental disagreement with another person about life and religion or God, sex, money, lifestyle, practice, etc., without resorting to hate or cruelty or violence. Within the way of Jesus, true things are called orthodoxy. Now, last week we talked about the doctrine of the church. Since most of you were not here, go back and catch up on the podcast. It's sort of important because, you know, church. For now, the long and short of it is that we talked about the way the New Testament teaches and presupposes even that one can only follow Jesus within the context of the church. And no, the church is not a walk in the forest with a friend or an organic picnic or a breakfast club or a dog park. The church is and has been the consistent, faithful gathering together of men and women of all ages, all ethnicities, best friends, and strangers to worship, take communion, give time and finances study the scriptures, all the things we still do today. All of this with the vulnerability and accountability of other disciples of Jesus with whom we share our discipleship. Your life opened up to the support and correction of other disciples of Jesus. But who oversees all this? Is anyone in charge? Can anyone lead the church? Let's look at 1 Thessalonians together, and I'll be honest with you guys, there's no way around this. I feel weird about reading this passage in a certain light. I don't actually like the way this passage makes me feel, especially reading in front of you guys, but we're not here to only read the parts of the Bible I like, so here we go. Stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture, and let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, Who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, In context, the letter's author, Paul, is talking about those who lead the church or church leaders. That phrase, those who work hard among you in the Lord, can be translated those who are over you in the Lord or those who take charge, who exercise leadership, who exercise spiritual authority over you in the Lord. Paul is talking about this symbiotic relationship between the family of the church and the people who lead it. The New Testament often uh, talks at length about church leadership, even naming offices or official positions of church leadership and the team. Two in particular, there's elders or overseers, and then there's deacons. More on those two terms and what they mean in just a little bit. Look at this if you don't think it comes up often in the New Testament. Here's just a sample. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders or overseers for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An overseer manages God's household. In the first century, Paul traveled the ancient world planting churches, not organic friend groups that take hikes and talk about spiritual things, but churches, and with every church Paul appointed or commissioned the appointment of elders or overseers and deacons, leaders, official leaders, not we all share the same leadership and not we're all leaders in our hearts, but anointed, sanctioned leaders with specific spiritual responsibility for each church and the people in it. And what does that mean exactly? And where the heck are the pastors? Hmm. Aren't they the ones who are supposed to be in charge? We'll get to that in a second. First, notice here in 1 Thessalonians that the church leaders in question have three jobs. First, if you're taking notes, to work hard, to labor, to serve on behalf of the church. So there you go. Here's one easy way of identifying a church leader or even the eligibility of a church leader. They work hard among the family of God, meaning they are present and participatory and self sacrificial with their time and resources. For this reason, we actually adopted a philosophy really early on before we ever had a Sunday gathering that when we, Van City looked to put people in positions of leadership, the prerequisite would be to find the person already doing it the people already stepping into the roles that we need to fill without a title or a paycheck or a pat on the back, the people just doing it already. Not just the person with the best experience or the degree or the amazing skill set or the person who wants to do it, but the person already doing it, working hard, working hard among the people. So they're actually present in the church, known by the people and knowing them in turn. Now, obviously, no one in this room can know more than 100 people with any meaningful intimacy. The same was true of Paul and Peter and Timothy and the other first century church leaders. So the idea is not that the leader in question is your best friend or they come to your house every week or the leader takes all your calls, but that the leader is present and participatory in the family, in the community. Here's an example. Garrett is upstairs right now. He's reading this in real time as he does my slide. So you didn't even know you were showing up in the teaching, did you? Cameo. For Garrett up there, y'all can't probably can't see him from depending on what angle you're in, but he's right now up there clicking through the slides of my teaching. I know him through Van City, and he knows me the same way. Now we don't talk on the phone every night. Here's an intimate look into me and Garrett's uh, personal friendship. We don't talk on the phone every night. We don't have dinner at each other's houses, but we're both here among the community, and we know each other in and through it, and in that way, we are friends, and I'm honored to be Garrett's friend. So the church leader is known through, in, and amongst the community, even if they aren't, you know, your best bud. They work hard among the people. Thank you, Garrett, for working hard among the people. Second, they care For you in the Lord. That can be translated that they oversee or watch over or protect and guard you. And that phrase does imply authority, ooh, I know, but not big boss CEO authority. It's more like a paternal authority to guard and protect a family, to lead them with loving, self sacrificial guidance. And then the third job is that they admonish them. That's a word we don't really use at a common level that much, but it can be translated, they correct them. The leader corrects the church. The leader corrects theological, moral, social error amongst the people in the church, meaning they take the often awkward, painful, and unpleasant responsibility for calling people out on their sin and failure with grace and kindness, of course, but with the intention to correct and to call the church to repentance and go forward in discipleship to Jesus. It could be the guy or the girl who's up here on Sunday evening teaching, or it could be the one sitting down to have coffee and pray with you on a Monday morning or in your community. But notice. The relationship between the church and its leaders is, as I said, symbiotic and reciprocal, meaning the people of the church have responsibilities to their leaders, just as the leaders are responsible for their church. Look at First Thessalonians again. Here's where I feel weird all over again. Verse 12, or Chapter 5, verse 12, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So the first responsibility of the church to the leaders is to acknowledge them. Literally, it means to see them, or it could be translated, appreciate them. The idea is that you recognize those that lead the church and you value the work they do for both you and the family of God. Second, you hold them in the highest regard. Now that can be translated, honor them. That does not mean that you exalt your leader, or that you offer blind obedience to them in all things. It means that when you are a member of a church family, you recognize the position of your leaders, follow them, listen, come under their authority, pray for them, hold them in high regard because of the importance of the role they fulfill. And then finally, love them. Don't badmouth them. Don't pick them apart. Don't critique them to your community. Don't slander them. Love them. So the leader works hard among the people, cares for them, corrects them, and the church acknowledges their leadership, honors them, and loves them. Now, it's hard to capture in words exactly how provocative, how subversive this paradigm is for the modern American reader. We are a country founded on anti-authoritarianism, and the modern ethos screams for complete autonomy without judgment or correction of any kind, always, of course, replete with breathtaking hypocrisy. Um, I think of uh, progressive sex ethics and the conversation around gender, which barrels forward like a trackless locomotive all the time. At one time, tolerance was defined by the societal willingness to accept and acknowledge the existence of differing viewpoints and ideologies with while maintaining Basic decency with civil dialogue and debate. So the idea is that tolerance was, well, I disagree with either what you believe or say or how you live, but... I will yet treat you with dignity and respect as a human being, in our case, made in God's image. Then something shifted, and the rule became, it's not enough to acknowledge my worldview and to treat me with dignity and respect. You must approve of my ideology and action. And then it mutated again, and now the demanded standard is that it's not enough to be civil and accept different perspectives, that they exist at all. It's not even enough to approve of ideology and lifestyle. You must celebrate all of it, or be banished from society. And the breathtaking hypocrisy of it all is that in the end, it boils down to approve of and celebrate my ideology, even if it compromises yours, and if you do not, we will destroy you. The prevailing comrade code is no one can tell me how to live. Now you live how I say or die. And this we call tolerance. My point is that we actually want authority, it's just that we want to be the ones to dole it out amongst everyone else, over ourselves, culture, the church, politicians, entertainment, celebrity. Don't tell us what to do. We tell you what to do. A ridiculous tug-of-war governed not by logic or sense, but by the self. And it's not just the progressive moral police. Look at the church. Just about everyone, Christian or otherwise, is aware of power being abused By so called Christian leaders. You can just open any kind of church history manual from the last five years, ten years, let alone on down through history, and you'll find embezzlement and fraud, domineering, spiritual abuse, sex scandals. In my own immediate circle, I have connections to churches with pastors. Who have abused and hurt people, stolen church funds, run off with mistresses or cars full of cocaine, whatever. And there's actually a whole podcast out there right now about the demolition of a megachurch empire under the unforgiving weight of abusive leadership. I refuse to listen to it because it's too popular. (laughs) Uh, I got several comments on this teaching from our other leaders saying, like, oh, you really should. You can learn something. No, it's too popular. So, The idea of coming under religious authority, the religious authority of a church leader at a time and in a place like this, is not the easiest sell, to say the least. But the New Testament, as usual, doesn't care about any of that. And not because ideas like moral failure in the church or anti-authoritarianism were unknown in the first century. Paul had no idea that was going to come on the scene. They were both present and accounted for in the early church when these texts were written. But Paul says it anyway. As a leader of the church, he says it. Work hard, care for, correct, acknowledge, honor, and love. The church has leaders, and the leaders have roles. Those under their leadership, in turn, have symbiotic and reciprocal roles as well. Now, there are a few things to be said about our particular church and how we approach leadership, but before we get there, let's talk a bit more about the particulars of church leadership. Bear with me for just the next few minutes. This might seem dry and clinical to some of you, but I'll tell a few jokes, and before it's over, give you some inside baseball, so just hang in there. It'll be worth your time. You guys still okay? You still with me? Allah, are you all right? Okay, great, thank you. Now, notice the New Testament paradigm is for overseers and deacons. In the Scriptures, pastor is not a title but a verb. There's nothing particularly wrong about using pastor colloquially as a title. It's just not a New Testament office of church leadership. The offices are for overseers and deacons. Again, overseers are often called elders. But since the term elder has another more obvious meaning, and because elders are not always elders... In that sense, if you know what I mean, we've decided to prefer the term overseer at Van City, which the New Testament also uses, and it's just a bit more self explanatory. So, the way we put it at Van City is that we have overseers, and those overseers pastor certain needs of the church. So, I'm an overseer, I pastor teaching and creative vision. Cam is an overseer who pastors communities and people. Patrick's an overseer who pastors operations. But isn't it interesting that Paul writes, to all God's holy people together with the overseers and deacons, and not to the senior pastor of the church in Philippi. In fact, from the earliest stages of the church of Jesus, leadership has been carried out by teams rather than individuals. There's a story in Acts 6. We don't have time to unpack the full thing tonight. You can read it on your own time. It's actually really interesting. Which The early church comes to the leadership team. At that point, it's the 12 apostles and not just to Peter, senior pastor. And together, the team of 12 proposes a solution to a problem that the church is facing. So the paradigm we're given from the outset is of a church that knows their leaders because those leaders are there. They're participating in the life of the church, and those leaders are a team. The team begins with overseers. An overseer is someone who provides pastoral care, to the church equipping members for ministry or leading them mentoring them developing spiritual maturity they oversee the various responsibilities or ministries of the church and they guide and guard the doctrine of the church by teaching people how to follow jesus and what the scriptures say In the New Testament, guarding doctrine is actually one of the core responsibilities of an overseer. And that doesn't mean that they have to have a Bible degree to qualify. It just means that they are committed to the teaching and maintaining of orthodoxy and to correcting false teaching and sin when and if it arises in the church. But to be qualified to do any of that in the first place, the potential overseer has to meet particular criteria of spiritual maturity established by Paul. Turn just two books to the right in your Bible to 1 Timothy. It goes 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, then 1 Timothy. I know, I know, lots of Bible. You'll be fine. And let's read when you get there from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I don't like reading this either. Here we go. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach. "...faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect." If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So there you go. Hardly anything, you know. Now, some of you probably noticed the... uh, masculine pronouns used for overseers throughout the text, which means we can't get through this teaching without another controversial thing to address. So here we go. All sorts of takes on this debate, but there are basically two common basic theological positions on overseers, and both positions run a spectrum. So here's kind of the major landmarks. First, you have the complementarian position, which among all sorts of other things, argues for male overseers only. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the egalitarian position, which argues that both men and women can potentially be overseers, uh, depending on if they're qualified or not. Now, I'll say from the outset that there exist mountains of books on this subject, and we don't have time to really get into it this evening, and that's not exactly what this teaching is about. If you want to dig deep and learn a lot, I would recommend Cynthia Long Westfall's excellent book, Paul and Gender Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ. If you don't want to go through a huge book on it, if you want kind of the Cliff Notes version, uh, Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy have a fantastic book called uh, Across the Spectrum, where you can unpack the basics of both debates and learn a lot in just a little while. For our purposes tonight, here's what you have to deal with. The Bible presents a consistently subversive portrait of women as entirely equal image bearers of God. And the Bible was written into ancient cultures, far more sexist and misogynist than our modern culture, which often still tends toward sexism and misogyny. Women in the scriptures are presented as the only disciples not to abandon Jesus during his execution and the only disciples to visit his tomb. And all four gospels, they receive the honor of being first to witness Jesus raised from the dead. And then later, as the church begins to grow, along comes Paul participating in the movement, writing most of the New Testament, which is no small thing. And we learn from his writing that women have become crucial in leading the church. Paul's letter to the church in Rome is what scholar N.T. Wright describes as one of the most explosive pieces of theological writing in history. Super dense, super complicated, And at that letter's conclusion, we see something incredible. Look at this from Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of His people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. So Paul is, at this point, depending on female leadership, not just to lead the church, but to guard and transmit inspired, authoritative scripture to the church in Rome. Phoebe, take this letter back to Rome, read it to everybody. Now, these women held official office of leadership in the church. They led a church that met in their home. And he, Paul, is calling on men to meet the needs of the female leaders. Paul goes on to mention many more women by name before the letter concludes. Now, this is just one important example of the fact that from the very beginning of the Jesus movement, men and women partnered together to lead the church of Jesus. But if you know the New Testament, you also know that there are some really confusing passages in there also written by Paul, in which Paul seems to command all sorts of crazy stuff like women need to keep quiet or that they can't teach or that they can't have authority over men or that they have to wear hats for some reason. But as with all of the scriptures, we read individual passages in light of the whole. Does Paul really intend for Phoebe to hold official office of the church in leadership, to be responsible for sharing and guarding the doctrine of Romans, which is one of the most complex books in the New Testament, if she isn't allowed to speak in church or to teach men at all. If Phoebe can never teach men, how the heck did the men ever learn what was in Romans? Did she get it to them through charades? You know, one (laughs) word. My God. Now, We look at the broad, beautiful portrait of women presented by the Scriptures as equal image bearers who, with men, lead the church of Jesus, and when we do the hard work of dealing with the unique cultural context of individual passages dealing with specific cultural issues in specific churches, which is why, you know, none of the women in here are wearing head coverings right now, because we know that neither Paul nor the Scriptures will contradict themselves. Thus, at Van City, we take the egalitarian position of church leadership, believing that both men and women are capable and qualified to lead the church in any and every office of leadership, including overseers. Whew, okay, now, that was the first thing. <laughs> deacons. <laughs> the deacons work under the overseers, collaborating with them to carry out leadership for specific needs of the church. Another way of putting it plainly is kind of like their ministry team leaders. So Katie, for example, is the deacon over our prayer team. Taylor is the deacon over Van City Kids. Kiana is the deacon of women. Arielle, like she just said, is the deacon of people care. And like the overseers, they have to meet certain character qualifications for the role. Look at 1 Timothy 3 again, verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested... And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women, or that can be translated female deacons like Phoebe, are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Messiah Jesus. Wow, geez, high bar to just even be a deacon. High bar for both overseers and deacons. And we have both. My God, can you imagine? I'll out them, too, right now. Patrick and Cam, uh, you know about those guys. I've already put all the deacons out there. You just heard them. But did you guys also know about Scott Barker? He's an overseer. Don't let him off the hook. Eric Tabanowski or Tab, he's he's one of them, too. They're overseers. Because if I'm going down, they're going down with me. (laughs) And our overseers and deacons are aware of these qualifications. In fact, it's what we take them through when they're being trained to meet or to fulfill any role, position of church office. Our Are our overseers and deacons all of those things from those lists? Do we really deserve acknowledgement and honor and love and all that? And I'll be honest with you guys, I sort of fell into this position. A lot of you have heard my story before. I was a full-time musician. I traveled most of the year, so I didn't even belong to a church. How could I? I was in a van every Sunday. And then one evening, uh, we had like a week off from traveling. We're in Georgia, where I'm from, and I went for this long prayer walk in the woods. Ain't that something? I'm up here constantly making fun of people calling a walk in the woods their church, but there I was. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I was praying and listening, and not for anything in particular, just like uh, it was part of my spiritual discipline rhythm at the time. And I felt like out of nowhere, God's Spirit impressed upon me that I was to go become a pastor and teach Bible and theology. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you, uh, I or I should tell you rather, I don't have a ton of those experiences. Under my belt, so that was weird, especially since I had no outlet to even pursue these things. Then I went through a few years of change. My wife Abby and I moved, we became deeply involved in a church together. We started with vacuuming the carpet every Sunday after everyone left church at at night. And we got into a community with other disciples of Jesus. Now, neither of us is super gregarious by nature, so we made a pact together. This is before we had kids. It was just the two of us. We said, we're starting in a new church. Let's really give this a shot. Let's say hi. Let's get to know people. So we did. We showed up faithfully. We vacuumed the floor. We picked up the trash, and we introduced ourselves to leaders and to people, and we shook hands, and we didn't wait for someone else to tackle us with hospitality. We said, I'm Josh and I'm Abby. Now, sidebar, this is actually really important. If you've ever been part of a church and you felt as if you struggled to make connections, ask any person around that seems deeply connected how they got to know the people and the leaders, and I guarantee you most of them or all of them will say, I pitched in. I said hi. I introduced myself. I started to participate. I served. So Abby and I did this for a couple of years. This is now years after the walk in the woods thing. And we realized that we had really gotten to know a lot of people that meant a lot to us. And we'd both grown more in those couple of years involved in that church than many, many before them. And then they asked us to do more stuff. We, you know, kind of graduated from vacuuming the carpet on Sunday night. And eventually, years after hearing as much from God's Spirit and without chasing it down with any specific intent, I didn't shake people's hands and say, by the way, God told me to be a pastor, just so you know some church leaders came around me and they said, you know what? We see this in you. We think that you should learn to become a pastor and learn to teach the Bible. So I went to seminary, apprenticed under other overseers and pastors and teachers. And a couple years after that, they asked me, would you consider planting a church in Vancouver? I said, no, thanks. And (laughs) Abby said, absolutely not. In fact, her words were, and I quote, I would have to hear the audible voice of God. (laughs) Yada, 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 some stuff happened, and then, you know, six years later, here we are. Now, years later, I can tell you a few things about leading a church with other leaders. I have yet to meet a single person, man or a woman, who always meets every character requirement on those incredible lists. I don't believe Paul expects consistent perfection from church leaders. I believe that he expects a basic standard of qualification and the willingness to grow and to repent. Now, leading a church is a weird thing. Depending on the model of church in which you were raised or where you've come from before this, you might knowingly or unknowingly project certain expectations onto any given leader, hold them accountable to those expectations without them knowing it, and reserve the right to get bent out of shape when they disappoint you. I know this because it's already happened to most of the leaders at Van City at least one million times. That's the um, low estimate. Some people expect, you know, the down-home neighborhood church pastor who shakes your hand at the door and invites you over for a casserole after the gathering. That's what I had growing up. Others expect, you know, the hyper-charismatic mega-church influencer pastor that lends the church relevance and credibility. Not here either. (laughs) And when whatever they're expecting doesn't happen, well, you know, maybe they learn or grow from it or it's nothing or maybe they get upset about it. And if I can be honest with you guys, Being in that position can often feel tremendously objectifying because I've had people either tell me or someone else who then told me that they were angry or hurt because they didn't believe that I or one of the other leaders had made a concentrated effort to really get to know them. And in 100% of the cases to date, the offended party had never once come up to me and said hello, never once asked to grab coffee and talk, never once said, hey, Josh, I'm Bob, how was your day? They, they weren't offended that they'd asked to talk, and I said no, because if they would have, I would have said sure. In fact, both Cam and myself have been at coffee meetings with people who have accused the leadership of inaccessibility as we sit with them drinking coffee and having a conversation. And I'm not saying that to make fun of anyone. I'm saying like it's an actual tragedy, and I've been in this position projecting things onto church leadership myself, when you miss your opportunity to participate and grow with the leadership of your church because of stuff that you bring with you. And we all have it and we all have to work through it. And I say all this not to lament the woes of church leadership, oh, it's so hard for me, you know, or anything like that, but to highlight certain unhealthy preconceptions that many of us, including me, bring to our understanding and expectations of church and the leadership. So, To end tonight, I want to offer what I hope are a few helpful ideas about the relationship between the church and its leaders. First, if you're taking notes, the church is led by a team of leaders, not an individual. I do not have unilateral authority over anything. At Van City Church and I don't want it. I have zero say in my salary. A team of trustworthy individuals who go to our church but aren't paid by our church get to make those decisions. I don't speak into them. I can't spend the church's money on my own. I don't even have a church credit card, but Cam does, by the way. <laughs> I don't want to put that out there. Accountability. <laughs> I can't make major decisions by myself. Each and every teaching i give is sent out in advance to all the elders and deacons for feedback and correction the same is true of our other leaders cameron is the overseer in charge of communities and people care but he has to have the blessing of the other overseers to make major decisions about communities and people care and i am counting on not just hoping fingers crossed and certainly not avoiding i am counting on the other overseers to call me out on my sin, to correct me, and to remove me from my position should I ever become disqualified from leading the church of Jesus. Now, secondly, the leaders of the church have authority, but they are to exercise servant authority. And this is the paradox taught by King Jesus, the king of the entire universe who washed his disciples' feet for all Christians, and it manifests itself in church leadership in unique ways. The leadership is not here to call shots from afar tell people what to do and to show up wax eloquent on stage and then collect a paycheck. The leaders of the church serve the church. They don't ask of the church what they themselves are unwilling to give it. They're here on the ground in communities, participating, giving, serving. All the things we ask you to do, our overseers and deacons are already doing. And all of Van City's overseers and deacons, they show up to the gatherings, they participate in their Van City communities, they serve the church, they give finances, they hang around eating snacks with their kids running around like insane people like mine are, they roll up cords, they pack up equipment, they make coffee, they haul kids' supplies up and downstairs every week for Van City kids. They are not an invisible, detached board of CEOs so they serve the church but they also exercise authority here's one of my least favorite verses in the entire new testament you ready for this one have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority that part i like that's great for me that's y'all listen to that because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account oh my god the pressure terrifying. And I'm not kidding about this. We actually read this slowly over overseers in training to get them to reconsider the job they're about to take. They will have to give an account for the spiritual responsibility they have for this church. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be no benefit to you. The leaders of the church do what they do because they have taken spiritual responsibility for the family of God, not to boss anyone around, not for a resume, not to call shots, not to get paid, but because they love the church and they want badly to serve her. We understand that Jesus loves the church so deeply, He called it His bride. The intimacy and affection in the metaphor are staggering, so Paul pleads, listen, both of you, the church and the leaders, care for one another. Please. The authority of the church leader is never an invitation to blind obedience. It understands that though your leaders are imperfect, and they are, if you belong to the church and as much as they faithfully call you deeper into the way of Jesus, follow them there. Yes, you get to ask questions. Yes, you get to push back. No, we are not above suggestion, not above correction, not above mistakes. But ask yourself, who do you want to be as a member of this church? If this is where you belong, if this is where you've decided to commit, you, yourself, your family, all that, who do you want to be? Do you want to be driven primarily by cynicism and suspicion? critiquing every decision, always looking for the worst, projecting your own trauma and wounding and insecurity onto the church and its leadership? Do you want to be comfortable and prideful, so sure that you know much better if only the leaders would seek out and apply your superior wisdom? Or do you want to move forward in faith, loving and honoring the church and her leadership, willing to offer your best as they are willing to offer theirs? because the church does have leadership and there are roles of authority and in submission, love and honor and spiritual responsibility, but the world is broken and so is the church. So finally, there's only so much a leader can do and they will fail. Those of you who have been a part of City for any length of time know this well enough. A church leader, any church leader, is not responsible for meeting any and every expectation held by members of the church as to what a church leader should or shouldn't be. It's pretty obvious to those of you who know me even a little, I don't really meet a lot of the stereotypical criteria for what one expects when they imagine a pastor. And I didn't think much of that when I first started, but then a short run into Van City, I'd experienced enough people upset about it that I asked, my mentor, someone who had been a pastor and a teacher and an overseer for many years, if someone made a mistake when they asked me to do this? Was I not supposed to do this? Am I supposed to try to transform into someone else? And he took a deep breath and said, you know, you can't be someone else, so you do it as you and do the best you can. Our team of leaders at City is by no means without its flaws. We're well aware of that. We have made mistakes. But... I can honestly say that I believe with integrity I believe we are doing the best we can. I've called out I've called out other overseers and I have been called out by them and I have witnessed repentance and forgiveness and I really believe that our overseers and deacons genuinely love Jesus, they love his church and they want to serve this church well and to embrace an uncompromising orthodoxy that recognizes the cruciality of the church as the only venue for following Jesus. I want us to become a family that subverts all the broken understanding of what it means to lead and to be led. That we would be a family led by women and men with no interest in their own egos, no selfish ambition, no cruel domineering, no abuse of power, no call for blind obedience, no pride, but a servant leadership of women and men who love the church and, like Jesus, want to give themselves up for her, leaders and people willing to apologize and to repent and to forgive, that we would be a family made up of men and women prepared to rid themselves of cynicism and the American idol of individualism and are instead ready to follow Jesus and the leaders of this church into deeper intimacy with God. So let's pray and ask Jesus who is our king and our ultimate authority and leader to lead us well. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.